to the Disrupt Your Career podcast, brought to you by Claire Harbour and Antoine Thiel. We're passionate about helping everyone find fulfillment in their work life. We believe that big, messy, uncharted career changes are inevitable, and it's up to you to decide. Will you take control and disrupt, or allow yourself to be disrupted? We wrote the book about it, and now we share here our conversations with other thinkers in this crucial area. Settle down and get ready to listen to this dose of wisdom. So in this next edition of the Disrupt Your Career podcast, I'm really happy to be welcoming Anne Hyatt. Anne is a leadership strategist and consultant. She's a founder and CEO. She's the author of Bet On Yourself. She's the former right hand to CEOs Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Eric Schmidt of Google, and she is currently working and living in Spain from where she offers wisdom that derived from her extraordinary years in Silicon Valley. And welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you joining us. Let's get straight into the usual first question around your own career journey. You've been through several pivots and economic crises in your career working directly with the CEOs we've mentioned, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Eric Schmidt at Google. So you've certainly tasted life at the top and in in growth. You've also coached global CEO consulting clients over four continents during the recent pandemic, current pandemic, I'm still sad to say. (laughs) Why don't you tell us how this amazing career has unfolded and tell us a little bit about whether it was by design or serendipity and what you feel are your key achievements and challenges? Yeah, this was not by design. That's for sure. <laughs> I you, feel like, yes, no, I did not have a master plan to take over the world and work for the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world. Um, no, I'm really lucky. I, I, I like to joke and say that I have both terrible timing and incredible luck. Mm. So um, I graduated from undergrad in 2002, just after the dot-com bust. And because of that economic constraint, I was in Seattle, which is a very tech heavy city Mm -hmm. and Seattle's economy was destroyed nearly overnight. We had trillions of dollars of investment disappear. And I really did not know what to do with myself. I and all of my classmates had no job offers available to us. So I put out 50, maybe even a hundred resumes and uh, didn't get a single call back, not even for free internships, nothing. And so it was only because of that, I was, uh, at the time, I had a student position, actually I had two jobs while I was studying. One was at the library and one was at the European Union Center. And the director of the European Union Center asked me what I was going to do, told him the situation. He said, have you thought of applying at Amazon? I had not. I was not interested in tech. I'd grown up in Redmond in the personal computing boom. Redmond Microsoft campus literally surrounds my parents' house now. Um, They still live in that same house we moved to in 1985. And I don't know, tech just hadn't really called to me, but I applied because why not? And uh, it took me nine months to get that first job, but obviously that changed the course of my life because that first real job after um, graduating from university was working directly for Jeff Bezos, sitting at the desk, literally physically closest to his in the entire company. So I was there for three years. Then I went back to plan A. I'd already always planned to be a professor. And I got into my dream PhD program at University of California in Berkeley. And so I moved down there to start grad school. And then Google came recruiting. I said no for a while. And then eventually they talked me into joining. 
and uh, I worked there for 12 years. So I first worked for Marissa Meyer. At the time, she was vice president of search products and user experience at Google before she became the CEO of Yahoo. And then the last nine and a half years, I worked for Eric Schmidt, the CEO and executive chairman. So in 2008, I was looking to really kind of up-level my career, finally get you know a promotion and get a, some leadership roles and titles. But then the economic crisis hit, and even at Google, they really tightened their belt, and a lot of those opportunities disappeared. And so, again, it was terrible timing, but kind of the best thing that could have happened to me, because I kind of had to get creative in inventing opportunities for advancement for myself. The traditional paths were no longer available to me, so I had to create project opportunities, really pick my head up and be like, what does the company need most, and how can I be the person to supply that? And I ended up creating a role that didn't yet exist in the company called chief of staff. And I became, I and a guy named Paul became the very first chiefs of staff in the company. And then now it's a Silicon Valley standard and now it's becoming a global position. But then after, yeah, 12 years at the company, I decided it was time for another challenge. I had recently become engaged to a Spaniard. So I decided why not? And I sold sold, donated, got rid of literally everything I owned that didn't fit into two suitcases and three duffel bags. And I moved to Spain, not speaking a word of the language, not knowing a soul. And I founded my consulting company here, not knowing that like nine months later, this global pandemic would strike. So terrible timing and incredible luck in getting opportunities I never would have dared dream for myself. Brilliant. That's an absolutely wonderful story. And I love it when serendipity and luck and, and things play into, into what you've created in, in your different ways. Tell us a little bit about what lessons you learned working alongside these extraordinary leaders. I mean, we could be here for a week answering that question. <laughs> Pick a few. <laughs> <laughs> Distilling 15 years of what I consider the most elite business school possible is just sitting and watching these incredible leaders make really hard decisions every day. That was a great privilege. If I had to pick just a couple of lessons, you know, people often ask me, what are the common denominators between these super performers I've worked for? And I think that's kind of a nice way of answering this question is um, they're all insatiably curious. So I really learned not only are they curious in the volume of the things they read, the books, media, newspapers, they're, they're extremely informed, but not only in their areas of expertise, they really lean into building their understanding in emerging technologies or things that really seem to have nothing to do with their day-to-day -day jobs. They're just very, very curious. And then that also bleeds over into their work. When they're running meetings, it's, it's a really weird experience when you haven't had this level of questioning before when someone presents to one of these CEOs for the first time, it can be a little jarring, but they really ask like a hundred more questions than the average person would ask about something. They really lean in. They ask why, why, why? And, um, and that was really incredible to watch because it brings the conversation to a different place. They don't just skim over the details. They really get into it, make sure that they've looked at it from every angle, especially in companies that are trying to invent the future. You really have to anticipate things that you've never done before, that you've never experienced before, no one's ever seen before. And um, that was a great education. The second thing that I think is really common among them is how particular they are about their their teams and the people they hire organization-wide, but especially in their direct reports. 
working for Jeff Bezos is an intense experience. He never lets, (laughs) yeah, surprise, right? You're shocked to hear that. (laughs) But um, there's a reason why the average tenure of his direct reports was 19 years. That's a long time to be in that intensive environment. And there's a reason for that. He's really, really choosy on the people he has around him. And then he really invests in building them up, making them their very best selves. It doesn't mean he goes easy on you. Like if you mess up, you're going to hear about it. But he does it for a reason. He's making you better every single day. He's bringing you along on the journey and championing your success. And that's really rewarding. And that's how they've prevented burnout is they have such long tenures because their work is giving as much to them as they're giving to it. And that has become my motto for my career. I try and create those environments for my employees. I always seek out those challenges. Um, I love my job. I love the work that I've done and that I do. And that energy exchange is why, because I feel like I've been in, in really rich environments where I'm learning a lot really, really fast. And then I think the last thing that is a common denominator among them, among many, many things, but um, is really the way that they are consistently disrupting themselves. They're up-leveling their skills and their understanding. They're sitting down at tables where they are not the smartest person in the room, which is very difficult because they are some of the most intelligent people in the world, but they seek out that kind of learning and disruption and are always looking for what's next for them. So they're inviting this challenge and never getting too comfortable in their skill sets and their reputation. So those are some of the things that I admire most about them. I also don't want this to sound like hero worship. I I know their strengths as well as I know their very many weaknesses. (laughs) So they're not perfect people. They've made some some mistakes and some bad decisions. They would be the first to admit that. But I do think there's a lot to learn um, from some of their best practices. Beautiful. So as as I think about the the curiosity and the Mm. endless learning, um, it makes me think of your big transition from having been part of enormous, fast-growing global corporations to becoming a consultant. Um, yeah. And that's a pretty massive and disruptive change, which is what we love. It's what we're all about. But it's a big challenge. Tell us about yeah. how it's really been. Well, this again, this is a common theme in my career. It was unintentional that I became a consultant, actually. So after 15 years of very intense work environments, fast-moving companies, inventing the future every day, doing things no one had ever done before, I needed a breath. I, I did this all, it's kind of cliche in Silicon Valley now, but when you leave an environment like that, you need like six months sabbatical. You need to just recharge. You need to get back in touch with yourself. What's your personal mission statement, your values? What do you want to be contributing to the world next? So I tried to do that. This is right around the time when I got engaged to a Spaniard and we were thinking about would he move to California or would I come to Europe? And I thought, you know, what better way to reinvent yourself and to really reflect on what's important to me than to pull myself into a brand new environment where I don't have these old habits and routines and this kind of easy road I did not fully appreciate how big this challenge would be. So I came to Spain and while I had been working for Eric Schmidt at Google, he has a personal uh, venture capital fund called Innovation Endeavors. And when he would have different um, portfolio CEOs who are struggling with a particular thing, sometimes he would tap me on the shoulder and say, could you take her to coffee and chat through this or Mm. take him out and like meet with him and just walk him through this thing. And I loved it. I did it just for fun because, um, I love seeing what the next generation of entrepreneurs were like. I miss that early stage, gritty, crazy, terrifying, you know, uh, environment of being a startup. And uh, so I I just, 
I, I ate it up. I love that. So when I left Google and they were like, Hey, what are you doing? They, several of them tapped me saying, Oh, I'm sorry. Could I just bring you on board for a month or so and just have you help us with this or help us with that. And before I knew it, I had a full consulting roster with a waiting list, which is a great problem to have. But that's how during the pandemic, I ended up consulting with CEO clients all over the globe who are having the wonderful problems of scaling very, very rapidly and who were primed to address this very rapidly changing work environment that we were in. We were moving to remote work. We were serving clients. We were going to the extremes of digital transitions in some of their strategies. And um, I just loved that. It was such a privilege to be in those war rooms with these CEOs and watch them accelerate their growth by at least 10 years. They had to be really, really brave and they had to step up in a different way that in the end, I'm really lucky to say every single one of them is significantly more profitable, efficient, and happier in their work than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And that is to great credit of them. They were very brave and making some very scary and uh, hard decisions, but it, it's been fun. So yeah, again, unintentional. <laughs> Indeed. And you continue with, with similar work today, perhaps under mm-hmm. slightly less pressure. Yeah. Yeah. No more uh, 4 a.m. war rooms. That's that's nice. (laughs) But um, yeah, no, I'm shifting it more because what I really want to do, my personal mission statement, which took me more than six months to write for myself after I left Google. But my personal mission statement is to discover and empower underrepresented entrepreneurs through actionable education and mentorship. I found that actually added the first word of that mission statement last. At first, it was empower underrepresented entrepreneurs. And now I realized I had to add the word discover because there are entrepreneurs out there who haven't yet self-identified that way. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're an entrepreneur in a company and haven't quite thought of themselves that way. Or maybe they haven't been brave enough to turn their side hustle into a main hustle. Maybe they think they're too small. You know, they just have this community project or they're just trying to help women or kids or whatever it is in their environment. And they haven't yet recognized I am an entrepreneur. So that's what I'm really trying to focus on right now is being able to address more volume than just my one-on-one clients. I learned very quickly that I cannot take more than 10 CEO consulting clients because I put so much work into research and briefings and war rooms and getting to know their leadership teams and hosting. And so I wanted to help more than just that. So that's one of the um, reasons I did the book, why I have a podcast, why I try and post as much free resources as possible. I speak at universities. And now in this year, I'm trying to move away from the one-on-one consulting and really helping entire leadership teams doing strategy, offsites and retreats so that I can help more people bring their unique voices and kind of really democratize success, help more people feel included in this environment and have the tools they need to be successful. I love the Discover. It uh, it resonates a lot. And certainly the way we think about how careers evolve, the idea of exploring the curiosity, the, the, the yeah. looking for is, is so strong too. So that's, mm. that's wonderful. A great, a great resonance. Tell us a little bit about what advice you might have for early career professionals. Um, you know, you've mm-hmm. you started your own career in an unorthodox way. Um, <laughs> so what what can you share with us in terms of personal learning and experience that might be useful for those starting up soon? I think this is such an important question because looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. I wish I had just a little bit of guidance, but luckily I was in environments that taught me to be brave much earlier because by nature, I'm very timid. 
uh, I'm not this bold risk-taking moonshot kind of person that, you know, this cast of characters that was around me, like that is not my nature. Mm-hmm. Thankfully the universe chose this for me and it nurtured me into these crazy mm-hmm. moonshot environments, mm-hmm. but it is definitely not my comfort zone. My comfort zone is to do things perfectly, like perfectionist and all the negative connotations of it. Like holding yourself back out of fear of looking stupid or embarrassing yourself or highlighting something you don't do well. Um, I really cared what people thought of me. I really wanted to earn my keep. I was just so worried about disappointing people. But thankfully, Amazon taught me, you know, starting Amazon in 2002 when the company was not yet profitable, we were doing things, we were inventing not only e-commerce, but the gold standard of e-commerce. I saw these very experienced senior executives around me also having no idea what they were doing because no one had ever done it before. So that gave me permission to also lean into things and raise my hand for things that I didn't know how to do. And it was okay. I knew it was okay that if I failed as long as I learned something really fast, pivoted and tried again and just worked really, really hard because that's what they were doing too. So that's my advice. If you're just starting out, especially right now, if you're entering the workforce in this really crazy environment, semi-post-pandemic, and maybe the job you have right now in no way resembles your dream job, this actually is an opportunity for you to create some opportunities for yourself, even if they appear limited. And when I look back, I did not have this framework for clear for myself back when I was early in my career, but looking back, there were three things that made a huge difference for me, especially in the early years. The first was to be very clear with myself, what do I want to learn from this role company team opportunity Mm -hmm. and being really clear on what you want to learn. What expertise do you want to become known for? What teams do you want to learn how to lead? What project expertise? What's the reputation you're building for yourself? And when that's clear for you, that's how you raise your hand and get brave for things that you haven't yet tried because it's really aligned with that with that mission. And uh, that was what helped me get brave. I I volunteer for things at Amazon. Looking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like volunteering for that, but I'm so glad I did. So that's number one is be very clear. What do you want to learn in this stage? And where's that going to take you to and qualify you for next? The second is seek out leaders that you not only like, but that you want to become like. Now, early in your career, you probably don't get to choose your manager. You're going to take just like I did the, the first person that actually just gives you a call back for interviews. But um, even if your direct line manager isn't worthy of that, hopefully she or he is, um, but even if they're not, there's other people in your company. Maybe you can look for opportunities to work on cross-collaborative projects that will broaden your understanding of how the company works or give you exposure to different leadership styles, different paces, different motivation systems. And even if that's not available within your company, maybe volunteer for some things in your community that do feel aligned and where you can seek out that um, exposure to the leaders that you want to be able to emulate in the future. Because just watching and observing can really, really teach you a lot and gives you, it helps you know what you're looking for in your next role. And that is how, I love how you keep bringing up serendipity. That is how you engineer serendipity because You know, when you know what you're looking for, what you want to learn and what kind of leader you want to be like, those opportunities, you can recognize them in their little infancy before it, otherwise it would have passed you by. But now you've got this checklist of like, Ooh, I would love to work for a leader like that. And I know I'm going to learn this there. And so it becomes the obvious next choice for you. And then the third thing I would say is I've really benefited from disruptive industries. Now that does not mean you have to work in technology or an artificial intelligence or anything like that. 
that can be a very traditional institution. It can be in finance, it can be in education. But what you wanna do is look out, look for a team that rewards continued learning. That's gonna incentivize you to get outside of your comfort zone and consistently raise the bar on your skills and your expertise. Whatever environment that is that you find rewarding and aligned with what you wanna learn. But don't, I would, I consider it a red flag when I see a team that's very complacent. They're happy with where they are. They've been at the same level for 20 plus years. Your manager isn't incentivized to like invest in you and help you grow. So when those three things are true for me, I found that I could work hundred hour weeks without burning out because it was giving me so much. But when those things are out of balance, that actually maybe counterintuitively is when you burn out, when you're underutilized, when you're not learning and growing, you're not being challenged, that's when it feels like a grind. And I know early in your career, when it maybe doesn't resemble your dream job, it can quite easily feel like a grind unless those three things are present. Brilliant. Let's move on to your book, Bet on Yourself. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote it, what sort of needs you were trying to address, and what was your process? I was very much an unwilling author in the beginning, I have to say. Mm, Join the club. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. A lot of people have writing a book on their bucket list or I just, that was not me. I was really, I don't know, intimidated by it. I just kind of, at first I thought, well, if people want to learn the best practices of Amazon and Google or Eric Schmidt, Jeff Bezos, like they, those books exist. But it wasn't until I met a friend who's now my book agent he was like, but even they could not write this book. None of those executives or um, other people who've been at those companies, none of them have the same experience of this cross section experience I've had with three super performers. And I, I really, the reason I, in the end, got brave and wrote it was I also feel this enormous responsibility to pay it forward, to pay forward this elite education I've had of not only access to these CEOs, but at irreplicable moments in time. The internet is never going to be invented again. Uh, e-commerce, all these, all these apps and tools and things that are ingrained in our daily lives, I've watched them be invented. And so what I wanted to do was to share those stories. You can read the book in two ways, and I hope people do. One is just a story of the crazy foundational years of the internet and these like larger than life, you know, characters that have been around me for 15 years, but also as an empowerment. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to translate the best practices of these super performers for us normal people. I, in the book, use my career as a case study because I am not exceptional. I'm not elite. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I'm not exceptionally talented in any way. I was just always willing to both outwork and outcare everyone around me. So I wanted to show the way in which I, through my own efforts and a lot of luck, yes, I, I have some privilege, definitely, like my family invested in my education. I'm Scandinavian in appearance. Like there's, there's all kinds of things that give me some advantages for sure. But I'm hoping to inspire anybody, even if they don't know someone who looks like them or or comes from where they come from, to bet on their dream and to see that you can create your own luck. You can create these moments of serendipity and opportunity. And I wanted to give you the playbook for how to do that. Fantastic. Can you share some of the main ideas? I mean, obviously, we want people also to go Mm -hmm. out and buy the book. (laughs) <laughs> but if you could talk to us maybe yeah. about taking smart risks or championing your own ideas, mm-hmm. whatever, can you can you give us some boiled down version? Yeah, I 
what I hope people take away from this is seeing that while this environment of Silicon Valley and these people do seem exceptional, there's universal truths that are applicable regardless of where you might find yourself right now. So I love that you called out those areas in particular of creating opportunities for yourself for learning, of getting on the right teams, of what being brave might feel like. And so what I've done is one of my favorite parts of the book is at the end of every chapter, while I've shared with you these, these fun stories that you've likely never heard before from um, the foundation of the internet, what I give for you individually is uh, an ROI sprint challenge. So ROI is not the traditional definition, although that still applies, but it's about recognizing, owning, and implementing your own plan for how you're going to translate these, the print core principles and the stories that I share into some challenges for yourself. So how are you going to take your dreams, something maybe you're scared to say out loud right now, and translate that into milestone goals so step-by-step step you can make that a reality? So at the end of each chapter, I've got um, prompts for a career conversation with your manager. Maybe you're, one of my favorite sections of the book is uh, how to get promoted, because I did it so wrong <laughs> the first time I tried to get promoted. Um, I just had, I'd been recruited through no effort of myself by Microsoft while I was at Amazon. And um, I just went to Jeff and I was like, look, I want to keep working for you. I think this is much more special than what they're doing at Microsoft, but I've got this competing offer. So will you match it? And he was just so not impressed with that. That was not compelling. That is not loyal. That had no vision. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, I realized pretty quickly, I mean, he was very kind. He was just like, I guess, you know, it was just, I don't know. I knew him well enough to read between the lines of that. He was not impressed with, with how I'd done that. And every time since when I'm, when I want a, a promotion, when I'm looking for a new challenge, I go to my manager at least six months in advance, often a year in advance. And I say, Hey, here's what I want to learn. Here's how I think I can learn that. And I do what, uh, what's the name of the CEO of Whole Foods, John, I always say Mackie, he calls it a win, win, win. So what you want to do is you want to align what you want to learn and the expertise you want to develop. Sorry, somebody just rang my doorbell and my dog's barking. <laughs> so um, in the future, when I have wanted a career conversation, I go to my manager six months to 12 months in advance, and I outline a win-win-win, which is where I'm aligning what I want to learn in the next phase of my career with what my manager has been charged to deliver at the company. So I'm taking something off of her plate or his plate and bringing that onto my own. And that is then aligned with what, how the company wants to win you get a yes every time. So everyone has the same expectation of where you're going. And then you've proactively identified projects, opportunities, advancement, certifications, whatever it needs to qualify you for that. And then you've got this empowered list. Your manager's gonna give you those resources. They're gonna say, sign off to you attending that conference or that certification. And then when it comes time, you've already got the same scorecard you are both working off of that same checklist that qualifies you for that advancement. And that I wish someone had told me a very long time ago is that took me like a decade to figure out how to do that. And it streamlines the whole process. What has never happened to me in my career as a manager coming to me saying, oh, and I was thinking about this untapped talent that you have and how we can utilize that on this team. Like, no, that's it's never going to happen, unfortunately. That's my responsibility. My responsibility is like, how can I be better utilized? How can I become a powerhouse on this team? How can I anticipate what my team, my company, my CEO is going to need from me and prepare me today to be the one ready to deliver it in the right moment? 
Absolutely. I mean, it sounds as though much of that feeds into the article that you recently wrote for Harvard Business Review on how mm -hmm. to figure out what you want next in your career. Um, and there you, ref you refer to this sort of three areas of focus, purpose, people and pace to help people assess their value and get them asking themselves several questions to think about yeah. value alignment with potential employers or inside. So tell us a little more about purpose, people, pace. It's a lovely three Ps. Um, <laughs> is, is there more to dig into there? This is, again, something I wish I had been told much earlier in my career. It gives so much clarity, especially if you're choosing between offers or you're not really feeling passion aligned with the current work, but you don't know what it looks like next. In fact, I was just doing this webinar last week and someone asked a question right, right, right at the end. I think she was a little shy and finally got brave enough to ask it. And she said, and I am feeling old and underappreciated and ready to re retire. And I'm way too young for that. And that just hit me right at my core because I know exactly what that feels like. Mm. You feel like, why am I working so hard at this? Do, are you, am I even seen? Does this matter? Mm. I'm exhausted. Mm. How can I make this feel meaningful and energizing and, and like I matter again? I think that's what we're all craving. And this is my favorite part of this crazy uh, great resignation that's happening is people are asking these questions. So Right at the beginning of the great resignation, just as that term had been coined, I was working with Harvard Business Review on, on this article. And when I thought about it, it really did come down to these three categories. The first of people we've touched on a little bit in this conversation. This is about having being very purposeful in this up leveling effect. For me, I think this is an opportunity to seek out mentors, sponsors and avatar mentors. So a mentor is somebody whose job it is to know your strengths to give you assignments that help you grow, to champion your career. Hopefully you have a manager that is what I just described. Not all of them are. Mm. The second is a sponsor. Now, what's really important here is a sponsor is somebody who's just a few steps ahead of you. Sometimes people look for a sponsor that's like 10, 20 years ahead of them. The truth is they don't remember how they got where they are. It's so long ago and their contacts aren't that fresh. What you want is somebody who can open a door for you that you can't open for yourself and because they just walk through it themselves. Yeah. So they've got a seat at the table. They've got a little clout when they can vouch for you, invite you to a conference or be on a panel or participate in a project. And then there's something I call avatar mentors. These are the people 20 years ahead of you. And here's the best part. They don't need to know you exist. They don't have to like, uh, for example, one of my long-term, like 15 year long met avatar mentors is um, Brene Brown. Brene Brown does not know I exist, but what I've done is I've watched her career very, very closely because she had a very non-traditional approach into academia and writing and, you know, her incredible instant New York Times bestseller status right now was hard earned. So I've reversed engineered by watching her career and how it unfolded because I want to be on those stages one day. I want to be writing books like that one day. I want to have a, a TED talk that becomes a Netflix special that whatever. And so I can reverse engineer that by watching her. It doesn't matter that she doesn't know I exist. So that's people. The second category um, was um, purpose. So this is where you're going to have that conversation with yourself of setting your own individual career mission, vision, and value statement. This sounds easy, but when you sit down to do it, at least for me, 
it can get a little overwhelming. So what I've actually, it was so overwhelming for me that I actually put together a template. It's available on my book website and my personal website. It's a 14 page download because I couldn't make it smaller than that. That will walk you through this process of discovering your purpose, your passion, your mission, your values, and helps you get aligned with that. It does this exercise with you that I just described about mentor sponsors and avatar sponsors, for example. And it helps you write your own individual mission statement like I did about discovering and empowering underrepresented entrepreneurs and how you're going to deliver that. Having that very, very clear, again, going, I love this central theme of creating serendipity. When you have that clear for yourself, you're going to see opportunities that you would have missed otherwise to contribute uniquely in your community or in your family or in your company. And then the third one is pace. And pace for me has very much changed over time. Yes, in the beginning of my career, I had nothing that could ever be called work-life balance but I also didn't mind. (laughs) I worked hundred plus hour weeks. Nobody asked me to, I would work late at night or I'd come in on the weekends, not because it was demanded of me, but because I was in an environment where I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to miss that moment when we figured out that really hard problem or finally patched that vulnerability in the code. I want to, I was so aligned with it that it gave me a lot to be in those rooms, to experience those war rooms, that moment in time that you can't see otherwise. But that has shifted. Do I want to work 100 plus hour weeks now? No. Like I'm 44. Thank you very much. I'm done with that stage. So this people purpose and pace process isn't just a one and done conversation with yourself, but something that I recommend revisiting fairly frequently, especially if life events change. Maybe you have a baby or maybe you're a kid, you're a recent empty nester, like those, the answers to those questions are going to be very different at those different moments in time. So For me, those three categories have given a lot of clarity to otherwise kind of bewildering, confusing, dizzying circumstances of how quickly the environment of work is changing right now. Fantastic. And I absolutely believe that this idea that you revisit, you're constantly thinking about some aspect or other of it is is very much a crucial thing. It's exactly the same advice that we give to our clients and our readers that it's never about oh, I did that exercise. Now I can put that away and everything will work for me from now on. Right. That's not happening. No, definitely not. Now let's go back to 18 year old Anne. If you mm. could go back and give her some advice, what would it be? That's so hard. I think <laughs> I would just tell her it's going to be okay. <laughs> because yeah. 18 year old Anne still was approaching the world timidly. I had a very small view of what I was capable of contributing but I also was brave enough to take on some challenges. Like I worked insanely hard. That was taught to me by my parents. And so I did have faith in myself that I could outwork anyone around me. But I, yeah, I would just tell her it's okay. I wouldn't go back and change any of the like, and I made some major mistakes, like very expensive mistakes, very embarrassing mistakes. But each of those were kind of a critical building block in the person that I became. So yeah, if I had that magic time machine, I would just tell her to trust herself, to bet on herself, actually, <laughs> to, uh-huh. to quote there my book, <laughs> that it's, it's all going to be okay. I wish, you know, if I could go back and change it, I would have learned those lessons faster. I would have been braver earlier. And, you know, people ask me, they love to hear those, you know, huge mistake stories of, you know, I'm not a crier, but I've definitely cried at work because things were very high stakes and moving super fast and they really mattered to me. And so people ask me all the time, like, what's the biggest mistake I ever made or biggest regret? And I have to, honestly, my answer is not any of those times that made me cry at work. It's not like in the big 
mistakes of commission. It's those of omission. Uh, The ones that haunt me now that I still think about like 15, 19 years later are the times I didn't raise my hand, that I wasn't brave enough to volunteer, that I didn't ask that question that ended up, I had the right instinct, but I wasn't brave enough to say it. And then the company suffered. Those are the ones that haunt me now that I still think about. Indeed. So if we look forward and we think about the rest of the year for, um, for 2022, what's, what's on your list? So many things. <laughs> I, I'm really excited to be back in real life. I'm looking forward to being on some physical stages again. I've loved that in the pandemic, I've been able to kind of connect with people literally all over the globe. It's wonderful that that is more desired now, but I do, I am looking forward to being on some big stages. I've got some really big events coming up over the next couple of months. So I'm looking forward to connecting with entrepreneurs that I haven't been able to see in person for a while. I'm looking forward to expanding my ability to discover and empower even more entrepreneurs. And so I've got some, a lot of proactive projects that I'm doing. And then I'm also needing to start writing the second book. So that's a big project for the second half of this year, which I am looking forward to. I feel like I learned a lot of things the hard way of writing the first one. And I maybe naively am hoping the second one will be a little easier because now I understand the process a bit better. Yeah, that's what we keep telling us ourselves as we try to <laughs> egg, on, egg each other on into doing a second one. We're not there yet, but we probably will get there. <laughs> and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. It's been a conversation that I know could have been multiply bigger um yes but uh i keep the the mental health of our listeners in mind <laughs> as we drivel on about the stuff that we're passionate about but i know yes. that they're going to find many very rich gems in this so we'll look forward to keeping in touch with you and learning more about what you do but in the meantime just thank you so much for being on thank you claire i really enjoyed our conversation we hope you enjoyed hearing from this month's guest as much as we did Do go and check out our work on disrupt-your-career.com and come back soon. Thank you.